Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Happy Monday What's, to all of you. What is so happy about a Monday? Well, I, I'm, well they poutine. get to hear us, Mike. Right. That's yeah. They're hearing us at this moment right. and feeling cheery about They're it. riding the bus. Yeah. Once, People are in, the, in their cars, frustrated. Yeah. The, the little Getting old the, man in the yeah. walker, like in office space, is going past you yeah. really quickly. Yeah, because of rush hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, but... You know what? We, little, we care about you. In a little over an hour, you we won't be talking anymore, and, and shitty Monday can come back. Right, exactly. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. We strongly advise listener discretion. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Animo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. <laughs> Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Let's get on with the show. I did like a... One of our listeners mm-hmm. sent me a script. Good old Josina. In March yeah. of 2019. Yeah. And yeah. I just put it on the shelf. It's an excellent script, but there was a bunch of things that I wanted to cover. Yeah. And then I completely forgot about it. Like, I honestly did forget about it. And then I emailed her and said, oh my God, I didn't see this. And this was like in June of this year. Well, you, we don't want to rush things. And she says, I sent it to you last year. And it was like, oh, my God. But anyway, Josina, today is your day. You, oh. you finally get to hear your script. You said, edit it if you want to. You know what? I didn't. No. no. I didn't edit it. But you it. didn't write any parts for me, Josina, and that hurts. Yeah. Well, I'll just be quiet. I don't write any parts for you either. <laughs> oh, don't let the mystery out. Don't, there is don't, no don't, mystery. Don't open the curtain. Yeah. But yeah, no, Josina is really good people. She's really good people. 
we got you got to meet her at the yeah, one day. She's, she's uh, fantastic. I, I think it was our first meet and greet. I don't remember, but a meet and greet. And yep. the, yeah. Yeah, I quite like her. Oh, she's wonderful. Uh, the only editing I did was just to add a break, a point where we take a break. So that's it. How do you feel? Are you exhausted? <laughs> so exhausted. <laughs> yeah. I am grateful because I'm writing my book. I know. Yeah. And I'm down to the final crunch. <sighs> and I really needed a break this week. Yeah. And so this was the week that I took a bit of a break. Jocini, you have no idea how happy you have made Mike. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, I'm happy. <laughs> So on Friday, June 19th, 1914, at 9.30 a.m., the largest and worst coal mining disaster in Canadian history occurred at Hillcrest, Alberta, in the Crow's Nest Pass of Western Canada. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 137, The Hillcrest Mine Disaster. And June 19th, that's uh, Violet's birthday. Oh, she's wow. not not that exact date, because she's oh, not 106. Gosh. Right. Uh, but, uh, I got, I hope not anyways, I've really screwed things up. I've missed a few birthdays. July 16th, 1902, Charles Plummer Hill of Port Hill, Idaho, purchased land in the Drum Creek Valley between the towns of Frank and Bellevue in the Crow's Nest Pass area of Alberta. So that's close to where the Frank slide actually happened. There's a town called Frank. I just love that. I mean, like is, oh, I've come visit Brian. You'll love it here. Exactly. Hill purchased the land from George Mills and Mary Heap. It's interesting that somebody who had owned a mine would have been named Heap. <laughs> anyway, with the intent of starting a coal mine, working as the Hill Promotion and Development Syndicate, Charles Plummer Hill sourced funding for his mining project. In 1905, the Hillcrest Coal and Coke Company Limited was formed, and Section 21, Township 7, Range 3, became known as Hillcrest. So that's how a place got its name in those days. Hmm. Someone gave it to him after, okay, this is where I'm going to put this town. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. There could be Scottsville out there somewhere. And it's not Coca-Cola. I was wondering, but then I'm thinking, no, I think it, it's, uh, at first it's, I'm like, but that's one name, the Hillcrest Coal and Coke Company. Yeah, Coke is a, a byproduct yeah, of, of mining. Of mining yes. yeah. And also not cocaine. It's not a byproduct of mining. I don't think so. Why? I, hmm. Carry on. Mining can be very lucrative. <laughs> Hill ran the mine until 1910 when it was taken over by a Montreal syndicate. Hillcrest Collieries eventually had three major workings, mine number one, mine number two, and level one north. The two mines were connected by two intersecting tunnels, slant number one and slant number two. It's kind of a scary name for tunnels. Slant? slant. I don't know. Well, I would just, because they usually do slant. They're ang angled. angled yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I'd be slipping a lot. Off the main tunnels were many smaller tunnels. At the same time, Hillcrest was considered the safest mine in the area. Oh. Advances in technology allowed mines to tunnel deeper into the earth. However, the risk of explosions also increased as mines became deeper and more complex. Hmm. Makes sense. Yep. Coal mining was prevalent in the area, and the nearby Coal Creek and Bellevue mines had experienced fatal explosions in 1902 and 1910. The Frank mine had been partially buried under a landslide in 1903. So I'm assuming mine explosions were a lot more common mm -hmm. back then. Yes. Because that's, that's quite a lot in a short period of time. And we did talk about the particular landslide that buried that mine yep. in episode 21. Everything circles around. Funny how that works. 
Hillcrest's mine yard featured a horse shelter, a machine repair shop, wash house, hoist houses for bringing coal to the surface, and an office and supply building. There was also a lamp house, a building that the underground workers passed through twice each day. Each man was identified by a number. That number was etched on two brass tags known as checks. When a miner arrived at the lamp house, he would pick up his equipment and the two brass checks with his number on them. He would then proceed to the timekeeper's office. The worker would keep one check himself and give the second to the timekeeper, Robert Hood. That makes sense. Yep. You're going down in a mine. We want to make sure that as many checks come back yep. as need to, and you would know who it was, who was missing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's fairly logical. Great way to track things but yeah. in the days before I'm signing in with Time my cell cards phone. And, 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 yeah. And, yeah. Hood was known as a fair and accurate timekeeper. At the end of the day, the men would head back to the timekeeper's office and hang their check on top of the one with the corresponding number. Great, makes sense. The men could be sure that Robert Hood would correctly note their start and stop work times and that they would be paid accordingly. And the checks, like we mentioned, had a second purpose besides timekeeping. If a miner was injured, disfigured, or killed in the mine, he could be identified by the number on his brass tag. It's very much like a dog tag. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of spooky. It, it is. You, you, yeah, you don't want to ever have your tag be... You're pounded you so flat that you, all they have of you is this like, brass <laughs> tag. Well, it seems like one out of four mines are exploding. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. In 1914, my grandmother, Vera, Mm-mm. was three. Oh. Yeah. Wow. In 1914, only 17 men working at Hillcrest were born in Canada. Most of them were from Europe, including Great Britain, Italy, and countries that were then part of Austria-Hungary, like Hungary, Poland, and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. These men and their families had moved to Alberta in search of better opportunities. It sounds like everybody from Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and New Brunswick, and PEI moving west as well. Yeah. Mining in the Crow's Nest Pass was largely seasonal from April to November with most of the work being done in late summer. Yeah, it's probably not really a great place in the wintertime. No. Well, it's probably not a great place in the summertime as well. I don't think at any point in time is ideal. Yeah. But some points in time would be less it's not terrible. Your, it's not my dream job, <laughs> no. working in no. a mine. Really? No. I always thought it was. No. Uh. The mine produced bituminous coal that was used by the Canadian Pacific and Great Northern Railways to power steam locomotives. So... When you see those old movies with the guy shoveling the coal into the engine. That's where they're getting it. That's where they're getting it. They're getting it from the uh, Hillcrest mine. Wow. Yeah. In June 1914, production at Hillcrest was in full swing with 377 men on the payroll. Wow. a decent chunk of people. Yeah. There were plenty of jobs to do besides the actual mining of coal. Men were needed to operate fans, perform security checks, do repairs, manage ventilation, move, sort, and clean the coal, and more. I don't know why. I'm very curious to know what the breakdown. Maybe it's just because of all of our time in management. I'm sitting there going like, oh, I wonder how many are allocated for yeah. you know, repairing. Yeah. Just Or, what? What you know, do you want to be the fan guy? Well, like I'm Personally, yes. Yeah? Yeah. I am pro-fan. And, uh, right. you can every once in a while, 
You can just a little dippy do your head in front of the fan and cool yourself oh, off. Yeah. yeah, nobody can tell you not to. And they're they're complaining. The yeah. other guys would be complaining because you were spending too much time in front of the fan yourself. Especially bogarting the fan. Yeah, don't bogart no, the fan. No, you get you. It, you have to be very strategic in when you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. At lunch. Well, when, everybody pe- else when people aren't looking, you do, you got to have a lot of distraction techniques. Oh my God, is that rail car off running loose? And then when I they, smell something and when everybody turns, you're like, ah, yeah, cool fan. Tuesday, June 16th, 1914. The men had been working hard and the mine had produced too much coal. Oh. A decision was made to close the mine for a couple of days. On Thursday, June 18th, miners James Gersten and George Pounder accompanied the president of the miners' union, Frank Pearsons, on a tour of Mines 1 and 2 and Level 1 North. Sure. The mine looked to be in good condition. The three men agreed that the mines could be reopened the next day. The next person on shift was Fireboss Daniel Briscoe. Firebosses, in addition to blasting tunnels in the mine, performed safety checks before the men went into the mine. This involved going to the face of the working areas and using a specially designed miner's safety lamp to check for methane gas mm-hmm. and other problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not just cave-ins. There's mm-hmm. also gas that can seep in from the ground. and Slow, especially yeah. if it's been shut down for a few mm-hmm. days, just building and building and yeah. building. At the end of his shift, the fire boss would post a report indicating any concerns in the mine for the next fire boss. HillcrestMineDisaster.com states that, quote, a fire boss had to be at least 23 years of age, hold a mine rescue certificate, a certificate from a medical practitioner showing that candidate has taken a course in first aid and ambulance work. I guess it was more than just fire. Yep. Mm-hmm. Must have at least three years practical experience in a coal mine and is the holder of a minor certificate. All sounds uh, legit. Or hold an approved diploma or degree in scientific and mining training and at least two years of experience working in underground coal mining, one year of which has been at the working face or work equivalent thereto. Sure. Those sound like good qualifications to have to be a fire boss in a coal mine. Absolutely. And they also had to have knowledge of, one, the Coal Mines Regulation Act. That would be important. Sounds legit. Two, Ventilation. They're always great in a mine. Three, practical work. You got to know what everybody else is doing. You do. You do. And four, safety lamps. Yep. Yep. From 3 p.m. until 11 p.m. on Thursday, Briscoe performed safety checks and discovered pockets of methane gas and coal dust, but noted that moisture and ventilation were good. So, okay. Okay. Maybe there's offset. I don't know. He's doing his thing. I don't know how it works. But maybe we learn about it in the next paragraph, Scott. We'll find out. Methane is absorbed in coal as the coal forms. The deeper the coal, the more methane it's likely to contain. Mm, All right. Because you know what coal is, essentially. It's like, it's dinosaurs, just like oil. Wow. Well, when you break it down like that. Yeah. So we're using, back in the day, they used to use dinosaurs to to fire up uh, coal uh, trains. The potentially explosive gas is released as miners pick away at the coal seam. A spark from a pickaxe or falling rocks can cause methane to ignite. Mining also creates coal dust, and without proper moisture and ventilation, a methane fire can cause coal dust to explode. So, the, oh shit! Yeah, it's this very dangerous. This seems like every single action you need to do to mine a mine. 
is, is also exactly the actions needed to blow up a mine. Yeah, pretty much. Well, what a, <laughs> that's quite the yeah. precarious uh, job. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound uh, very promising for huh. this situation. It, it sounds like there's a high likelihood. That there's going to be an explosion. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the shift, fireboss Daniel Briscoe posted a notice of his findings for the next fireboss, William Adkin. He began a shift at 11 p.m., so they were working 24-7, around the clock. I guess when you're underground, it, who gives a shit if it's midnight? Yeah, like, fair if, if it was dark or not, like, it, you're, it's dark down there. Yeah. For the next seven or so hours, Adkins continued to monitor the mine for methane and coal dust. Near the end of his shift, he too posted a notice explaining where he had found elevated concentrations of methane and coal dust, but noted adequate moisture and ventilation. So... All right. Same. Both the fire bosses are saying similar things. 6.20 a.m., Friday, June 19th. Summer was only a few days away. William Adkins exited the darkness of mine number one and squinted as the bright sun hit his eyes. He left the mine at 7 a.m., replaced by fire boss Sam Charlton. In a few hours, the bright spring morning was to be filled with chaos and panic that Hillcrest had never seen before. Jeez. The miners and other mine workers arrived at Hillcrest Mine on that bright morning for another day of work. Around 7 a.m., a total of 235 men passed through the lamp house. They gathered their wolf safety lamps, equipment, and their brass checks and filed over to Robert Hood's office. Mm -hmm. June 19th was Thompson Court's first day at Hillcrest Collieries. Oh, shit. A police officer with the Coatbridge Police Force in Scotland... He had immigrated to Canada only a month earlier. Mm. Unable to find work right away as a police officer, Court instead took a job at Hillcrest. Another new face at the mine was 17-year-old Alexander Petrie. He came from a coal mining family. Several of his brothers also worked at Hillcrest. Alexander had only worked at the mine for two or three weeks. Mm. The miners were paid monthly, so he hadn't even received his first paycheck. Oh, man. 17. Yeah. It was about to be Tom Corkhill's last day at the mine. The next day, he was going to leave for his newly purchased homestead in Lethbridge, Alberta. Rod Wallace and his brother-in-law, William Neath, were originally farmers from Nova Scotia. They had tried their hands at coal mining, but neither liked it. The two men and their families decided to return to Nova Scotia to continue farming. They were set to leave for Nova Scotia three days later. It was a different story for Charles Ellick. He was a long-time coal miner, not easily deterred by the dangers of mining. He survived the Frank Slide in 1903. Oh, holy crap. Ah. Fallen rocks trapped Ellick and others in the Frank mine. They spent 13 hours digging themselves out. After the Frank Slide, Charles Ellick and his family moved to Hillcrest, and despite his previous brush with death, Ellick went to work at the Hillcrest mine. In June 1914, Ellick's wife was pregnant with the couple's sixth child oh wow so big family yeah. he's already had a very close call yep but still working well still it's what mind. you know yep yeah and likely uh you think when you have one close call you're going to tend to think well what are the odds of having two yeah exactly james s quigley the superintendent and a team of bratis men were the first workers on the 7 a.m shift to enter the mine the Bratis men controlled huge tar-covered screens to direct fresh air to where the miners were working and dilute 
and redirect concentrations of methane gas away from them. Oh, that's mm. kind of cool. I wonder if the tar was to collect dust as well. Probably. Yeah. The Bratises and two huge steam-powered fans, one for air intake and one for outtake, were the only means of ventilation in the mine. The miners did not carry any respirators or oxygen tanks and were dependent on the giant fans and bratises to be able to breathe in the dark underground tunnels. Holy shit. Whoa. I, I can't imagine any of that being okay this day and age. No. A respirators, I'm sure, on it. Like, that's crazy. What tough work. Quigley and the Bratismen spent 15 minutes alone in the mine before the others were allowed to enter. So they're setting up, making sure that all the safety equipment mm -hmm. is set up. Mm -hmm. The men working in mine one descended 365 meters through an underground passageway to reach the coal seams or workings, as the job site was called. Mine two was located to the south of mine one. The descent into mine number two was approximately 730 meters or almost half a mile. So oh, these guys wow. are going deep into the no earth. No kidding, man. Wow. Yeah, and so think about the a weight of the earth that's above you. I would I would imagine that's something you would try to not focus on. It's kind mm -hmm. of like the don't look down. Right. If you're up, you know, doing something dangerous in heights, just yeah. don't look down. Because when you start to think about it, it starts to become scary. If you've got troubles with claustrophobia, a mine is not the place that you want to be. Oh, yeah, that's no. me. No, thank you. <laughs> no. Yeah. I've crawled through a pipe before and panicked. Oh, Have shit. you ever done that? No, just saying that yeah. is giving me... It's not good. ...anxiety. Fire boss Sam Charlton gathered blasting equipment, a firing cable, battery, blasting powder, and a firing key from John Dugdale, or Jock the Powder Monkey, as he was known. <laughs> that's quite... Okay, that's a long nickname. Charlton headed off to Tunnel 32 off Old Level 1. The smaller underground tunnels needed to be constantly expanded to expose more of the coal seam. Yeah, because once you get done digging, you got to dig further. This was accomplished through small, controlled explosions. The fire boss carefully monitored methane levels while blasting the new tunnels. Oh, good lord. Yeah, because if a spark can set off methane. Imagine what an explosion. An ex ex I would imagine ex an explosion. Even a controlled explosion. Yeah, you know, yeah. At 8 a.m., another fire boss, John Ironmonger, checked in with Robert Hood and gathered blasting supplies from Jock the Powder Monkey. Ironmonger said hi to his son Charles, a rope ride whose job it was to move coal carts if they could be hoisted to the mine entrance. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. After saying hello to Charles, John Ironmonger proceeded to level one north, where he set off five charges. His son, Sam Ironmonger, was also at work in the mines that day. An additional eight miners entered Robert Hood's office around 9 a.m. As Hood collected the checks from the eight men, he noticed that two of them smelled of alcohol. Uh-oh. Yeah, mining and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a good combination. No! He refused to put the workers in danger and refused to let the two men into the mine. Oh, so it does sound like there you, was some safety. Yeah, well, at least Robert Hood took his job seriously. Well, he definitely did. Good on him. And these Bratismen sounded yep. like they yep. took it pretty yep. seriously too, as did the fire bosses. Everybody seems to be doing their jobs here. Yeah, it, it's just sad that in, what was it, 1906? 1914. Exactly what I said. It's just, I in 1914, you can be as safe as you want, but the... Uh, safety mechanisms you have mm -hmm. just aren't what they are now. No. So no matter how safe you are, it's still dangerous as hell. Right. 
The men were told to leave and went back to the miners' hall for another drink. So I guess if we're hammered now and we can't go to work, <laughs> let's go get more hammered. Oh, God. Meanwhile, the residents of Hillcrest went about their usual daily activities. 9.30 a.m. Suddenly, the men at the mine's entrance were knocked to the ground by a catastrophic blast. Whew. The force of the blast killed Charles Ironmonger and another rope rider, Fred Kuragatz. Both had been thrown against concrete walls of the hoist houses. Oh, wow. That's so a, that must have been that's a big quite, explosion. Yeah, quite the velocity they hit the wall, I'm imagining. Wow. The explosion originated somewhere inside the mines. The men who survived the blast desperately searched for a way out of the maze of dark tunnels. They needed to get fresh air fast. The explosion ate up about 50% of the oxygen in the mine, leaving fatal levels of carbon dioxide, or black damp, as the miners called it, and carbon monoxide, known as afterdamp. I struggle to think of anything as terrifying as being trapped hundreds of meters below the ground. And not being able to breathe. In the pitch dark, not being able to breathe. Yeah. And, and trying to find, oh, I've only got to go a few hundred meters. Oh, my goodness. Like, oh. The explosion blocked the entrance to mine number one and damaged the large outtake fan. Jock the powder monkey called for the mine manager, John Brown. He in turn found an electrician who quickly rewired the fan to push the fresh air into mine number mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. 18 men made it out of the mine on their own. So all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're crying, you're clutching at your throat, yeah. you're just clawing your way out and... Oh my God, fresh air. Yeah. And you can stand up oh. and you can run. I would just run like the Dickens. Let oh me tell my. you. Well, God, you might just pass out though. Yeah. All, you know, like you might just get out there and just like collapse with it. Pure exhaustion. One man, David Murray, rushed back towards the mine to look for his sons, William, Robert, and David Jr. A policeman who arrived on the scene, Constable Hancock, tried to hold him back, but Murray forced his way back in. So another, another thing I'm picking up is you've, a lot of families working, a lot of fathers and sons working. Yep. In, in It's the family business, essentially. Well, and you're in a small town. Your dad's working there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get of age. What else are you going to do, really? Yeah. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. And, and back to our conversation that we were having yeah. before the break. What are you going to do if your dad's working in the mine? You're going to be doing either mining yourself or you're going to be working at a job that supports the mine. Yeah. What it, it, Those small town industries, yeah. they sustain the town. Yeah. I went to a small, an abandoned uh, uh, old mine town outside of Alberta. I think it was called Brackensdale. I, I can't remember. No. Brackendale is near Squamish. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it was really just quite the uh, it, the story exact. Mm. Somewhat, I mean, it's not like there was an explosion there, but yeah. once the mine shut down. The town shut down. They literally moved the town. Yep. The town is, is sustained by the industry. Yeah. My hometown is centered around a Michelin tire plant. Bankhead. Bankhead is the name of the town. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, lots of lots of my friends work in Michelin, and I don't know what would happen to Bridgewater if Michelin went away. Is it still there, I guess? Oh, yeah. yeah good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Several other men who had just escaped the mine themselves, including an engineer named Hutchinson, headed back to look for survivors. The first casualties found by the rescue effort were Rod Wallace and his brother-in-law, William Neath. 
the men who had been looking forward to returning to the family farm in Nova Scotia, both now lay dead, crushed beneath fallen beams. <sighs> the rescue effort continued down into Level 1 North. Three men were found alive, placed in a mine car, and hoisted to safety. I can just envision this happening. These broken, poor dudes who are, you know, barely alive, yep. getting cranked up, you know, and they're just seeing the light come. Well, oh, my goodness. We hear about mining disasters now. Well, that big one that happened in Chile not too, a yep. couple of years ago. And how, like, how difficult it is to extract people from that. And that's with modern technology. Mm -hmm. So if you're trapped in a mine back then that has gone kaboom, You've got to be thinking to yourself, this is it. Here's where they ran into trouble mm. in Hillcrest. Each of the hoist houses had been damaged by the explosion. Yikes. So yep. it's harder to lift people up if, yep. you, if your equipment is damaged. Yep. Eight-inch thick concrete walls had collapsed. The men working on the surface had quickly cleared debris to get the mine cars moving again. Oh, wow. But there was only so far rescuers could go without oxygen masks. Yeah, yeah. If they went too far into the mine, they risked being overtaken by the afterdamp, the carbon monoxide. Yeah. The symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning are headaches, dizziness, confusion, and drowsiness. Carbon monoxide inhibits the body's ability to pick up and transport oxygen molecules. High concentrations of carbon monoxide, or CO, prevent oxygen from reaching vital organs. Of the men who survived the explosion, many were overcome by the afterdamp while trying to find their way out of the mine. Survivors reported feeling drowsy and wanted to fall asleep. In order to stave off the afterdamp, miners dipped their shirts in puddles of water and breathed through wet fabric, sucking in some of the water, you know? So that's the best thing that you can come up with if the environment that you're breathing is just carbon monoxide. Yeah, but still imagine that, though, because you, you can imagine that water is just black. Oh, gosh. So, I mean, yes, it's it's filtering, and you might be getting some oxygen from it, but the taste, like, it's just, there's nothing. It, it's just shitty experience after shitty experience. Some of these men were found unconscious near puddles of water and later saved by the rescue crews. Others were less lucky. Some victims passed out, fell face down into the puddles, and drowned. Oh, wow. Herbert Yeadon described the ordeal. I was in the mine with six others about the end of drift number two when the explosion took place. It made a noise like a cannon going off, and we made a rush for the mouth of the pit. The gas was so strong, however, that we were driven back and the explosion in number one mine blocked our way in the other direction. We lay down in a pool of water, remembering our instructions that this was the best course to take in case of gases escaping in the mine. Then all became black. I remembered no more. I knew nothing until I awoke in the air underneath the blue sky, restored to consciousness by operators who resuscitated me with a pulmeter. My companions were also saved by the same means. Holy crow. Wow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Those minutes leading up to passing out, you're just like, I'm sure as you're starting to fade, your expectation is this is the end. Yeah. And so to then wake up to a blue sky. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. What a relief. Yeah. Eden was one of the men saved by the rescue supplies that arrived from other towns. Oxygen masks arrived half an hour after the initial explosion. Dr. William Dodd set up a temporary medical tent to treat survivors. About a hundred other miners headed toward Hillcrest to aid with the effort. Mm. 
Meanwhile, residents of Hillcrest gathered around the mine to look for survivors. Almost everyone in Hillcrest was related to someone who worked in the mine. Yeah, like what you're talking about, everything's related to that industry. Yeah, and I can imagine there were a lot of people wringing their hands as oh. each person was brought up out of the mine. Oh my God. Hoping that it was their loved one yeah. still alive. Yeah. Oh. Initially, Robert Hood reported that 237 men had been in the mine when the explosion occurred. That left... 198 men unaccounted for. About two hours after the explosion, Hood realized that he had made a mistake. Well, thank goodness. He had hung up the checks that belonged to the two inebriated miners. They were alive and well, enjoying another drink when the explosion occurred. That left 196 men unaccounted. Well, at least there were two who were, uh, you know, being pissed at work saved their life, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That that feeling, though, it's the same kind of a thing when a plane goes down and somebody's like, I was meant to be, I, I missed my flight and I didn't, yeah. that sense of like, wow, I Final just, destination. Yeah, I just escaped <laughs> yeah. death. Like Another seven men were found alive, bringing the number of survivors to 46. By noon, the rescue effort turned into a recovery effort and would last throughout the night. So that quickly they realized, wow. Yeah, well... Uh, there becomes a point in no return when you recognize you, you can't have survived beyond yeah, here. Especially with the amount of gas yeah. in the mine. Former fire boss Harry White was selected to lead the recovery effort into slant number one. More victims of black damp and after damp were located throughout the mine's tunnels and their bodies brought to the surface. The explosion killed the miners who had been working around tunnels 31 to 35. Their bodies were burned and contorted. Rescue workers waited until evening to recover the most gruesome remains. Severed body parts were removed only under the cover of darkness and to protect the loved ones, yeah. obviously. And yeah. perhaps there was news people there by then uh, taking pictures and things like that, yeah. uh, you know. So, oh, horrendous. Yeah. The wash house was converted into a makeshift morgue. They need a wash house because... You have to wash up after you get out of the mine. Corporals Mead and Grant cleaned the corpses and tried to identify them. Many victims were unrecognizable and could only be identified by the numbers on their brass identification tags. Yeah, like we mentioned at the beginning. Not not how you want your tag used. No. Some couldn't be positively identified at all. (sighs) Inspector Jungett had suspended the hotel's liquor license due to safety concerns. However, a bottle of whiskey showed up in the wash house where Corporals Meade and Grant were washing, identifying and wrapping bodies in white shrouds. It's said that the bottle of whiskey was quickly and secretly topped up whenever it started to run Mm. dry. Corporals Meade and Grant would each earn a $50 bonus, the equivalent of three months' pay for their work. Yeah, so... Let's keep these guys, you know, numb to what's going on. Neither of us are pro-alcohol necessarily, but I mean. I understand that. Yeah, Yeah. can you imagine what they have just witnessed? Yeah. I'm not anti-alcohol, just not for me. Well, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, we're we're both not advocates of going out and getting tanked. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, for what these guys have seen. Yeah. I mean, it's so understandable. Sunday, June 21st. The first day of summer was unusually cold. There was an icy wind and it even snowed. A procession carried the coffins toward the cemetery accompanied by the Bellevue Band. The band played Handel's Dead March, a piece of music often played at military state funerals. 
During the procession to the cemetery, some of the horses spooked. As they ran off, several coffins fell on the road and broke open. Bodies inside fell out. They were quickly put back into the coffins, and the procession continued on its way. Well, that's just unfortunate. And nobody's fault from, well, hazard to guess it was nobody's fault. Just the... It just, uh, uh, yeah. The horses get spooked yeah, and, and take off running and th- but yeah. add insult to injury to yeah, those poor families exactly. like they're not traumatized enough that dad's dead there his body rolls out yeah. onto the yeah. horse track yeah. on the way to the cemetery yep just adding trauma on top of trauma three mass graves had been dug in the cemetery it was the only way the small town could deal with burying so many people in a short amount of time yeah, in total 150 men were interred in the mass graves Others were buried separately or in family plots. Some men were transported home to be buried. Andrew Wallace, brother of Rod Wallace, escorted the bodies of Rod Wallace and William Neath and four other miners back to Nova Scotia. The Canadian Pacific Railway let them travel free of charge all the way to St. John. Alexander Petrie was the youngest victim at 17. The oldest victim was 54-year-old Robert Muir, He left behind 11 children. 63-year-old William Dodd, the Hillcrest's oldest miner, should have been working that fateful day, but he refused to start work on a Friday and stayed home. Interesting. Dan Cullinan was supposed to work the afternoon shift on June 19th, but switched with J.D. Redmondson. The switch saved Redmondson, but Cullinan lost his life. Mm. Other victims include... Thomas Court, the former Scottish policeman, and it was his first day at the mine. Yeah. Tom Corkill, it was his last day at the mine. David Murray Sr., he survived the explosion and went back to look for his sons. His three sons, William Murray, Robert Murray, and David Murray Jr., also died. Charles Ellick, the man who had survived the Frank slide, perished in the explosion. His wife, Julia, who was pregnant at the time, gave birth to a son, named John on June 20th. So the day after. The day after oh the disaster. God. One minor remained unaccounted for, Sidney Bainbridge. Constable Hancock filled in the details many years later. All they had recovered of Sidney Bainbridge was a single leg. To avoid causing the family distress at seeing a single limb, the leg was placed in the coffin of another minor. Mm, oh. Okay. Whew. In total, 189 men died in the Hillcrest mining disaster. It was and still is Canada's worst mining disaster. The 189 victims accounted for almost 20% of Hillcrest's population. About 130 women were widowed. Almost 400 children were left fatherless. Oh, wow. Hillcrest Collieries designated $1,800 for each victim's family or dependents, according to the Workmen's Compensation Act. However... These funds weren't made available until the following year. Mm. So these families went hungry for a year. Thanks a lot, Hillcrest Collieries. In the meantime, the federal and provincial governments gave a total of $70,000, and many cities also donated to a relief fund for the Hillcrest victims' families. Okay, so they didn't go hungry. And that's if we were, if $50 was equivalent to three weeks' wage for somebody, you know, that. That's going to make a big difference in their lives. Yes, but. It'll never make up for trauma, for, no. the, for this pain Losing and dad. suffering. No. And, yeah. King George V even sent his condolences. Mm. Claiming, yeah, I mean, mm. 
Yeah. Claiming the $1,800 wasn't going to be easy for some families, tensions were brewing in Europe. On July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Then, on August 4th, Canada was drawn into the war when Britain declared war on Germany. Attentions were shifted away from Hillcrest and toward the war effort. Many of the miners killed at Hillcrest had been from places now at war with Canada. Those with dependents in Austria-Hungary would have to wait for war to be over to apply for the compensation from Hillcrest Collieries. Once again, politics gets in the way yeah. of people in need. It remains a mystery as to exactly what caused the explosion. An early theory was that fireboss Sam Charlton made a mistake and set off a charge that caused the methane to ignite. When rescue efforts located his body, they found the firing key in his pocket and the firing cable still wrapped around his body. It was clear he hadn't set off a charge that fateful morning. Oh, okay. So he was vindicated. All right. Commissioner A.A. A. Carpenter led the official inquiry into what caused the disaster. Although the mine was generally considered safe, most of its equipment was less than four years old, testing revealed that Hillcrest coal was exceptionally gaseous and dusty. I'm mm. exceptionally gaseous at and, times. And dusty sometimes. <laughs> that, that if you've been true. playing Animal Crossing for too long. Yeah, probably. I have a moon now yeah. on my island. That's but anyway. beautiful. The most likely explanation is that the spark from falling rocks near Tunnel 33 triggered the fire, which caused the coal dust to explode. So something that couldn't Jeez, be prevented. Yeah. Despite improved safety and rescue standards, there was another deadly explosion on September 19, 1926. Just after 10 p.m., falling rocks ignited methane, which caused a massive dust explosion. Only two men were in the mine at that time. The 150 men on their way to work, the night shift, narrowly escaped an explosion worse than the one in 1914. Oh, my God. Hillcrest continued to operate through World War I and into the 1930s. Hillcrest collieries became part of Hillcrest Mohawk collieries. In 1939, Hillcrest Mohawk closed the Hillcrest mine. In an act reminiscent of 1914... Explosives were detonated inside the mine to close it off and prevent anyone from entering. We don't want anybody to get at this coal because we own it, but we don't want to mine it anymore. So boom, and seal it up. Which I would imagine if there were surviving family members, even if you know how they're going to seal up that mine, that must have been re-traumatized. Yeah, and plus, yeah, there are parts of their loved ones still there. Mm-hmm. The Hillcrest Cemetery is large, approximately five acres. The Hillcrest mine disaster is memorialized by a black stone monument with the words Hillcrest, June 19, 1914, Canada's worst mine disaster. On it is a picture of a miner heading toward the mine's entrance. The mass graves are encircled by white stone pillars connected by metal railings. Interpretive plaques around the mass graves provide information to visitors. The names, ages, and occupations of each of Hillcrest's 189 victims are immortalized on a series of black signs that stand in a semicircle overlooking the mass graves. More information about each of the 189 victims is available at www.hillcrestmindisaster.com. 2014 marked the 100th anniversary of the Hillcrest Mine Disaster. Shaw TV Lethbridge filmed a piece about the anniversary on it, they talked to John W. Ellick, Jr., the grandson of Charles Ellick. 
He said, it's the biggest explosion in tragedy in Canada. I think it's kind of an unrecognized tragedy, really. You know, it's not something we celebrate down here in Hillcrest, but throughout, you know, the rest of the country, you don't really hear about that much. No, I mean, yeah, if, if, well, you're not, if you're not from the area, you probably have never heard of the Hillcrest mine disaster. Well, as we were talking about in the lead-in to the show, you know, this is one that uh, I hadn't heard of. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's... I heard of it in my research when I was doing the Frank Slide. Yeah. I knew that somebody in the Frank slide would later go on and die. Die in a yeah. mining uh, explosion. It's just mind-blowing, though, as to what we choose. And I don't think celebrate's the right word. You don't want to celebrate. Uh, well, he wasn't uh, saying. We... No, I know. But, like, I'm saying for me using it, I was going to use the it same word. It should be commemorated. Commemorate, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy how uh, what we decide to commemorate and what we decide to not. Right. Because that's this is an epic tragedy. And that's it for this week's case. Thank you, Josina, for yeah. writing and uh, taking the pressure off me for a week. I really, really, really appreciate it. it you have really, no idea how, how great that was right now. That was really awesome, Josina. Thank you. Thank you so much. The goodest of the eggs. All right. Uh, I guess it's time for voicemails. Let's give this crap shoot a shot. <laughs> you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. And if we you don't hear it right away, that doesn't mean we won't ever use it. So, you know. So call anyway. Just keep there. calling. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let's listen to this one. We're curious about it. Hey guys, Mike and Scott. I've uh, been a long time listener of you guys. Uh, probably not as long as most, but about maybe two, a year and a half, something like that. But I'm just sitting at work here at the sawmill uh, on break, and I was listening to one of your shows, and I decided to give you a call. Um, I'm from Creston, BC. Uh, I got turned on to your guys' show uh, from the Dalmerl Nelson episode. And that really stuck stuck with me because I know people that were involved in that situation and I know the family and everything like that. Uh, I'm friends with a daughter of one of the survivors from that. And um, <clears throat> I just wanted to call and say that you guys have a totally different element to your guys' shows, a lot of different shows that have, like, it's kind of like a carbon copy, you know, of a lot of people's shows that people have. But your guys' show has it brings a different element to that. And that's just, I just wanted to... Um, appreciate you guys for that. And, uh, yeah, hope you guys can go and shit in your hat today, but, uh, have a good day. Thanks, bud. That's really nice. That yeah. was really nice. Yeah. While you're, uh, working uh, on break at the sawmill. Yeah. Another person doing a real job. <laughs> I've uh, worked at a sawmill, Scott. So. Might have sworn my dad worked for his whole life. Oh goodness! Much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to, I used to love the smell. Yeah. Oh my I, god! I worked at a sawmill. It was a, it was cedar, so mm, it was really, oh, really nice smell there delish. too. Delish. <laughs> What's that? Delish. Oh yeah. But yeah, no, that's really that was really really kind of you. It's uh, yeah, that it's nice knowing that people are listening while <laughs> while doing real jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have kind of a real job, not really. I'm, sure, it's it's a real job, but it requires negative physical activity. <laughs> right. Like, it's I suck other people's physical 
activity into a vortex. Well, that's kind of, of what you've not, always done. It is. I'm good at it. Yeah. It's, that's what they say. Do what you're good at. All right. Let's listen to this one. Uh, looks like uh, this is a person from close by. So let's have a listen. Yeah. Hey, Mike and Scott. This is Hannah down in Durango, Colorado. I have to tell you guys, I love the podcast. I am a huge true crime fan and I listen to many, many true crime podcasts, but yours is the only one that I have set up on three different Spotify accounts to download to three different devices. So I can guarantee you guys get at least three downloads from me every week. Um, your podcast just keeps me sane during my five different jobs that I'm working. And I thought you would find it interesting to know that I am the owner of an escape room business. I've never heard you guys talk about an escape room, so I thought you would find it pretty cool. But you guys are great. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you for the way you represent the victims and their families. It's so respectful and so kind. And per the use, please go take a mighty shit in your hat. Bye. Bye. And thank you. Well, thank you. I love escape rooms. I do too. Ask me if I'm any good at them. Are you any good at escape rooms, Scott? Terrible, Mike. I'm terrible at them. I, The last one I went to, I, the best I could do to aid the group was just step back. Oh, yeah. Get out of the way. Oh, that's not good. No, and we still didn't make it. But yeah. But yeah. I love them. I love them. You're I not known for your logic skills. <laughs> well, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. Scott's an empath. Mine, my strength is not getting out of uh, mazes and rooms. <laughs> it's like you just find Scott's skeleton in there. <laughs> His brittle bone skeleton I, off in man, the corner. If I, if I ever go to Paris and visit the catacombs, I just, I just <laughs> add, I'll add my bones to the pile. You just fit right in. Yeah, exactly. I'll just lean up against this wall. And... Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm hoping that never happens. Well, so am I. But yeah, no, I, I love escape rooms. Uh, I'd love to attend your escape room. Just make sure that nobody, that I'm not left behind. Right. Everybody else is, is out. Even once it's like, okay, it's over and they turn on the lights and open the doors. I'm still stuck in there. <laughs> okay. One more. Sure. Hi, Mike and Scott. It's Danea from New Westminster. I wanted to thank you guys for being awesome hosts for the podcast and appreciate all that you do in the way that you portray victims and uh, get their stories out. It's, it's most appreciated. I'm on a road trip right now and we'll be on the Highway of Tears probably tomorrow and that area always makes me sad so I'll tell you what, I'm happy to have you along keeping me company on this trip. Thank you very much, and keep up the good work. And I have a hard time telling anybody to do anything in their hat. So just enjoy it. Well, we'll, we'll enjoy our hats. Yeah, I. you know what? We are going to shit in our hats. Inde just Independently shit on our hats without yeah. having to be prompted by anybody. And we, we, won't, we won't make eye contact while... <laughs> We're all shitting in our ass because that's just uncomfortable. Well, we've kind of made a little bit of eye contact while you peed in a cup. But. No, I. You look the other way, I, but I can see reflection. Oh gosh. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long story. It is. Uh, yeah. So, thank you for the voicemails this week. They were great. Uh, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven. 
D-A-R-K-P-T-N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Just a word of advice. Don't call if you want to complain because you ain't going to hear it on the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you've got like something you're concerned about, send us an email. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We want to keep the uh, the voice, voicemails for, are for fun. For fun. Yeah, yeah. So there. I was going to say the F word, but I didn't. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, you know what time it is now? My my geographical senses oh, my are goodness. tingling. I can feel it yeah. happening. Can, can you see it? I can't see a oh, thing. I'm blooming. You're what? Yeah, my ge- my senses are. I'm, You're blooming crazy, <laughs> is what you are. Look at my plumage. It's beautiful. What? I don't know. I don't, I don't understand. I don't know what's happening anymore. I don't understand half of what you say or do. Yeah, you're better <laughs> off that way. You're better off that way. It is probably better off. I know me, and I don't understand me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, we're in trouble if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what day it is, God. I walked past, I haven't been at work in four weeks. I walked past somebody I work with. Yep. They didn't recognize me. I had a mask on. They didn't recognize me. I came back into work, and she's like, Oh, I'm so sorry I didn't recognize you. I didn't, I, I didn't acknowledge you on the street, and I just thought, I said, yeah, it's better off that way. I, I know. Me. It's better. You should I have said, just said it's better for both of us. I, well, I kind of, and I'm like, I, I know me, and the same thing I just said, like, I, I know me, and it's, you're better off to just keep walking. <laughs> All right, it's time for Patreon. Let's, let's see who we have first. So first up, we have Aaliyah. Capodici. Oh, yes. And she's from Doylestown, yes. Pennsylvania. Yes, And what yes. does uh, Aaliyah do in Doylestown? Ah, she's a card, uh, not sorter, a shuffler. She's a card shuffler. She's a dealer. Though. No. She just no. shuffles cards. Yes. Well, I mean, you could hire her. She'll come to your house. Like, say you're playing a little bit of Texas Hold'em. So she Texas just Hold'em. stands there? Well, if you're playing a little Texas Hold'em, and once the game's done, you're like, okay, shuffle these. And she'll hand it back. She's for hire. She's an independent shuffler. Wow. And is there good money in that? There must be if she's giving. It's all. A it, it's all in the tips. Right. It's all in the tips. Be nice to the winner is her motto. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Aaliyah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> We've got a new prime minister here. Oh, sweet sassy. This is Chris Killian. Thank you, Chris. And Chris is from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, maybe Chris is not going to like us very much after the series that is currently playing out in the NHL. Oh, oh. What does Chris do for a living? Uh, Chris, with a K, uh, does, um, uh, um, oh, what? It's hard to pronounce. Okay. It's hard to pronounce. Um, mathematician. A mathematician. Yeah. It's not only hard for you to pronounce, you don't understand what that is. Well, as soon as I hear math in anything. Yeah, your brain just I shuts tune down. Up, I tune uh, up. Same with me. I consider phone numbers math. <laughs> thank goodness for smartphones. It's all, thank That's you. That's all exactly. I can say. It's all numbers. If so numbers. Chris is a mathematician. Sudoku uh, math. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So yeah, does yeah. Chris teach at a school or? Uh, yes. Oh. Yes. What, what, what kind of school? Preschool. A mathematician that teaches preschool in St. Louis. Yeah. Doesn't have a high retention rate of, of knowledge, the oh, children. There you go. But but what can they do? They can't really. You, she's got to try. You, Chris got to yeah, try. Yeah. Uh, next we have. <laughs> Come at them with some heavy <laughs> Well, thank you for becoming a uh, a prime minister yes. with your mathematician's wages yes. from preschool. Oh, they, got, they make fat cash. They must. Yeah. 
Crystal Kesson. Also with a K. Crystal is from Vancouver, British <gasps> Columbia, a little place just down the road. Place? Yeah. We know that place. We are well aware of that yeah. place. Yeah. We, uh, we do our things in that place at times. Yep. Well, thank you, Crystal. What does Crystal do in Vancouver? She is a no fun bylaw officer. Oh, there's plenty you know, of those in Because you know how everybody's like, oh, Vancouver is the no fun city. So her job is to go and find people having fun and then find them. Oh. Yeah. To try to put a put a hold, put a stop to all this fun being had. Yeah. So if you're out and about and you're giggling to and fro with your friends, yep. you may run into Crystal with a ticket for you. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. And here we have somebody who is back as a prime minister. <gasps> oh. Uh, she took a little break for a while. And this is Kylie Ryan. Also with a K. And from Jade City, British Columbia. I remember talking well, about Kylie yes, before. Yes, because Jade City. But I don't remember if we gave Kylie a job before. I don't she, think we talked about We may that. have. I don't recall. But it, good thing she's changed jobs recently. Okay. Yeah. What does she do? Salmon scaler. Oh, she scales salmon. Yeah. Like. Now, what do you think that means, Mike? That means uh, she climbs them. <laughs> Well, that would be a fun job. Well, if you're scaling something. Yeah, yeah. That, that, no, but I'm not. taking I'm the not, scales off their poor little salmon-y skin? That's what she does. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's been doing it for a couple months now. She can really do it all with her eyes closed and just, you know. She's got tools and stuff and, you know. Yeah, it's not a glamorous job. I'm not saying it's a glamorous job. But in Jade City, if you're not making Jade, it's pretty much the only other job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, thank you. Very much for returning to us, Kylie. We yes, really you. appreciate we that. We really do. Um, the next up we have from Brooks, Alberta, Michaela Smith. Not with a K. No. Yeah. She spells Michaela the way I spell my first name I'm just officially. The, I'm just saying the last a, the last three people, a. their first names all started with K's. Well, there is a K sound yes, in Michaela. Is. Yes. Also not with a K. So I'm right on, I'm right on all points. So what does Michaela do in Brooks? Oh, in Brooks, what, what, uh, Michaela does is she is a hat manufacturer. Oh, fantastic. But it's all of those kind of, uh, you know, like what you might see when uh, they're big and poofy and they'll have like twine in them and little birds No, I don't don't know this kind of hat. You don't? Oh, they, oh, they're they're, they're strange hats. They're, well, they're very fancy kind of like. Oh, it, they're like couture. Maybe couture like hats. like a lot of people. You'd wear, see them on uh, America's Next Top Model. You would. You would. You'd also see them uh, at the uh, what's that Kentucky Derby? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I get you. What you're? I'm you're picking, picking up, up what, what I'm putting, putting down. down. Yeah. I love the to see the way the people are dressed at the Derby. Yeah, so does she. She provides hats. That's... I I went there one day and took pictures of people who were all dressed up at fancy. the Kentucky Derby. No, at down at the the racetrack. Oh, down here the Hastings, 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 and it was the dog races. Oh, oh. Those little dachshunds. Oh, that's yeah, fantastic. Great. But uh, well, thank you, Katrina. I would love a hat. Wasn't it Michaela? Or thank you, Michaela. I would love a hat. Yeah. Send us some hats. Uh, you're frilliest and we'll support yeah, them. Exactly. Next from Rosewood in Queensland, Ooh, Australia. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, we have a really nice lady. Yeah. This is Katrina Goodja. Also with a K. What is going on with all these it's, K names? It's very K. Wow. It's uh, as long as it's not three K's in one name. Well, now we got four. <laughs> 
K-K-K-K. Exactly. Okay. So what does Katrina, the nice lady, do down there in Australia? Well, she's going to hate me for saying it. Oh, no. Because it's so cliche in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? I know everybody's thinking, oh, she plays the didgeridoo or something, or she hugs koala. No, come on, guys. That's not that cliche. She boxes kangaroos. Well, people do. That is pretty cliche, kangaroo box. Oh, but maybe she puts them in boxes. She doesn't actually fight them. No, she fights them. What? Yeah, she fights them. She's the reigning uh, I lightweight. I we were going somewhere else nope, with this. Reigning lightweight champion. They, you know, they're pretty kicky. Oh, God, tell me about like, it. Like, they can kill you with a kick. Tell her about it. She's, we, should, we should provide her with this knowledge. Well, Katrina, Katrina, hopefully you're not knocked silly. Yeah, and but thankfully the ruse do wear gloves because you've seen those daggers on those oh, bastards. Oh, yeah, nasty. So they, got, they have to wear gloves on, on their feet. I get to pet kangaroos up, so up in I. Kelowna. Yeah. So did I. Went to the kangaroo yeah, uh, sanctuary in, uh, in uh, Brisbane. Oh, you yeah. went to the actual kangaroo? Yeah, we went, we went to, to the one in Cologne. Yeah, we went. They, they were probably all naturally there. I, I gotta say, they all seem sedated. Like, there's, there's no way there's like five thousand. They don't kangaroo. let the Canadians in unless they're sedated. like it's a sanctuary. So I assume like it's all like they should have put they, you they in take the box with a kangaroo. <laughs> I wouldn't end well for any of us. No, no. <laughs> I'd have to get a new coat. The, can, the kangaroo would feel bad. Oh, they'd feel terrible. Yeah, but oh, this was too easy. <laughs> Uh, next up, from Hamilton, Ontario, Okay, we have Brad. Brad. I wonder yeah. what Brad does in Hamilton. Uh, Brad. Oh, Brad is married to George Takai. Is... Yeah. Oh. George Takai's husband's name is Brad. That's right here. Oh, my. Uh, there, see? <laughs> there you go. Oh, I used to be able to do a really good Sulu impression. I haven't tried it in like no. decades. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, my. No. It's not even hello, like, Captain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so that's a, he does some of the posting. Mm. He has his own uh, ins, or his own like well, social good. media presence, and um, I didn't really, know that uh, Brad and Brad George mm-hmm. lived in Hamilton. That's they, new to me. They have a few houses. Oh, that's that's their that's their. They're we want to get away from everything. Yeah, house. They're making that social media <laughs> money. You know, I, guess, I guess so. Yeah. George Takai, was he there at the crime con that we were at? No, we no, would have remembered so. that. I don't Jordy so. LaForge yeah. was there. I didn't see him. Yeah, Carol and I did. I know. Yeah, and uh, we saw Bruce Campbell too. I saw Bruce Campbell. Well, we saw for sure. Uh, Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman. Yeah, that was right up there. There's was, a picture up there. It was dreamy. Yeah, he was nice. He really was. Yeah. And he retweeted our tweet or something, or, or tweeted. I don't know, but we he, he shared something. He was something. a fine gentleman. He was. Yeah, he retweeted us. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed that that the meeting with, with him. Me too. You never know. No. You, you never you know. You never do you know. You hear so many stories of people meeting uh, people they look up to, and it just it goes sideways. I'm sure. <laughs> Especially people who meet us. I was just going to say, I'm sure that's 95% of the people who meet us. Oh, that was unimpressive. Why are they, they, they wangs? Yeah, yeah they, they leave going like, oh, well, that wasn't really worth the trip. Oh, it's like they're exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> you look at every photo anybody's ever taken with us, we're more excited. Oh my gosh. It's true. It's true. We're all, oh, our faces. People are like, Mike looks so excited to meet you. I was. Yeah. I legit was. Uh, you have no idea how bonkers it is to have like. 
we live our lives and nobody gives a shit. And suddenly you're in a convention and people are like, oh my God, can I get a photo with you? It's just going to blow your mind. You're going to be like, oh my God, you want a photo with me? Yeah. Just squeeze all around. Well, here we got a, uh, uh, well, now it's time for donut money. Donut money. Let's yeah. talk about yeah. some donut let's money. Do, let's do First that. up, Destiny Edwards. And Destiny says, hi guys, I'm actually from Michigan and I am a welder. Oh, Thank you so much for making me more aware of the dangers in the world. Hope you guys have a great day and go shit in your hat. Well, thanks, Destiny. That's well, Destiny, great. You made you really made my uh, role in this <laughs> quite uh, easy. Quite easy. It just laid it all out there in the first sentence. Okay. Well, this says I need to accept that. So, accept. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. Uh, We've accepted your money. <laughs> turn to account history. Oh, come on. What the heck is going on? Oh, beats the crap out of me. Okay, there we go. Next up, from, oh boy, Munich, Germany. Oh. Sonja Einseidler. Yeah. Wow. What does Sonja do in Munich? Einseidler? Yeah. Yeah. Sonja is a uh, cobblestone paver. Well, that's probably valuable in Europe. It is, no, it is. It's, There's it's lots of still cobbles. Lots of trees. work. Lots of work. Cobbles are easy to find. Mm-hmm. Er, early in them. Cobbler er. Cobbler in. Uh, you can find cobbles in places to put them, is what She's I'm getting not at. not a cobbler. Daniel Day Lewis is a cobbler. He, the, does he really? Do he went to make, school to, to take. Get out yeah, of Yeah, he can make shoes. Get out of town. Yeah. I guess for only his left foot. <laughs> but it's true he did actually wow. go to become a cobbler. Wow. Yeah. That's quite fascinating. So there you go. So Sonia. Yeah. She she makes cobbles, roads out of cobblestone streets. Yeah. Well, thanks, especially, Sonia. Especially cobblestone ave. That's her work. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, Sally Norris is at it again. Oh, Sally. Thank you, Sally. Uh, <laughs> good Lord. Two, and so here's how Sally writes it's two donut emojis yep. thank you very much and then she says is everyone going through the same going through menopause or is it just ridiculously hot <laughs> many thanks as always always sally n weymouth uk occupation holiday travel agent business is unusually slow <laughs> this year Smiley face with a sweat on it. Well, thank you for your sense of humor <laughs> during this time. And yes, I'm also finding my menopause to be quite challenging this year. Your manopause? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's even a thing, but okay. I got the pause. There you go. Mike and Scott. Okay, this one is from Maureen McBride. Oh, Maureen McBride. And uh, she's from long, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Long time younger yarder. Yes, Absolutely. She says, Mike and Scott, you have blessed our ears for 8,833 minutes, 136 regular episodes plus one bonus. Holy shit. Here's one cent for every minute. Wish it could be more. Thanks for all you do. You're the most genuine people who pod. XOXO. Wow. Wow, Maureen. Thanks, Maureen. That is the kindest thing from the kindest person. You are the bomb. Wow. And thank you. Com. And thank you for calculating all those minutes. Yeah, we can't. My God. That's, that's mad. That's kind of crazy <laughs> when you think about 8,833 minutes. That's a long time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why are we talking so much? <laughs> wow. Someone it? shut us up. 
<laughs> well, thank God it's not a word count. Oh, oh my goodness. Fuck. Well, I know that each episode is a between four and four forty five hundred and fifty five hundred words. Jesus Christ. So that's a lot. A lot of words. Woo, Nelly. But that's the scripted part because it's not including all of the Patreon. The things that, yeah. you, that you say and then, wow. I, oh, my gosh. God. We've said a lot of words, Scott. Oh, it hurts my brain. <laughs> oh, well, it's all good in the hood. So thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe to us at patreon slash darkpatine.com or for one-time donation you can send us donut money via paypal at our email darkpatinepodcast at gmail.com and if you don't already subscribe to the show and i know some of you subscribe multiple times which is awesome <laughs> it would mean a lot to us if you did you can easily find us on itunes podcast stitcher tune in spotify or wherever you get your on-demand audio Check out our website, darkpatine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Good night or good morning or good whatever it is for you. Good time. Good time. Good Good, good time to you. Good insert day here. (laughs) Bye-bye. Boop.